from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Jane Faley, a Baha'i who intentionally went to a black college in the early 60s in the segregated South because she felt the need to promote racial integration. Today, she is a psychotherapist. We discuss her time in the South as well as her psychotherapy practice in the interview. I started the interview by asking Jane where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Ypsilanti, Michigan. That was a little town near Ann Arbor, which is the university town in Michigan. And it was a very provincial world. People were conservative and they didn't like things that were foreign or strange. What was religious life like growing up? Well, we were the only Baha'i family in town. And people, I think, didn't quite know what to think about it. They had never heard of it. Minority of the people would be immediately prejudiced against it. But most were curious and interested. When did your family first become Baha'i? My mother became a Baha'i when I was six years old, and that was in 1940. What was the situation? Well, she had been a Presbyterian Sunday school teacher, and she had always been unhappy with the thought that only Christians of her denomination would be going to heaven. She was troubled about all the other people. It didn't seem fair. So when she heard a lecture about the Baha'i faith and heard the idea that all the religions are from the same God, all are true, they just came at different times in history, she was delighted and she immediately enrolled. And what about your father? My father was a skeptic. He had seen hypocrisy, especially among the clergy, both in Iran, the Muslim clergy, and also the Presbyterian missionaries of the time. And so he had concluded as a very young person that religion was something where a few clever people milked the masses used their naive belief to enrich themselves. And it took him about 10 years to investigate the Baha'i faith and its leadership and become convinced that that was not true of the Baha'is. How was it that he was exposed to Eastern culture at that era to realize that the Muslim clergy was also corrupt? Well, he was 
an Iranian. He was born oh. in Iran. And his half-brother, quite a bit older than he was, used to entertain the mullahs, the clergy. And they would come to his house, and they would take off their beards, and they would drink wine, and they would talk together about politics, all of which they should not have been doing. How did that part of Michigan accept your father being Iranian? Well, that varied. Most people had never heard of Iran or Persia, as it used to be called. And so it was strange to them. My father was a very lovely and socially graceful human being. So he made friends in every category of people. Did he speak Farsi in the house? Did he raise you speaking Farsi? No, he did speak Farsi. His friends would come and they would speak Farsi together and laugh and laugh. Mm -hmm. But not understanding how important Farsi would be to me as an adult, he didn't teach it to Mm -hmm. the children. Did you pick it up some to some degree growing up? Oh, just a few words, just Mm -hmm. hello and goodbye and eggplants and things like that. (laughs) So what were your interests growing up? Well, I loved the Baha'i faith. We lived close to a school, a summer school for Baha'is, and I loved the teachers there and the other people there. So that was a strong interest. I liked nature and the outdoors very much. And I used to run through the woods and look for hidden places and ride my bicycle. I was a great nature lover. And what did you do after high school? Well, in high school and college, I began to think a bit about religious matters. I went to the University of Michigan, which was a very fine university, and I was exposed to great new-to-me thought about the world, economics, psychology, philosophy. I was just enravished by all of it. And at that time, the train of thought was just totally materialistic. Uh, Freud was, Marx was, Sartre was. And so I had to examine my own beliefs and learn to state them well, logically, and with sound reasoning. Because most people were looking at religion as a fairy tale. So it was a it was a challenge for you to present the Baha'i faith in somewhat of a logical manner rather than in a more mystical or spiritual manner. Yes, giving reason mm. and evidence about the progress of history so that it didn't sound like just some kind of emotional idealism. So what was your major in at university? Well, I started out pre-med because my sister had done that. And then I noticed that 
those courses required a lot of memorization and that I was having more fun in courses like history and economics and philosophy. So I switched my major to pre-legal studies, and that's how I graduated. And what did you do after you graduated? Well, (laughs) I had been given a scholarship to Harvard Law School the second year they admitted women. And I wanted very much to do that. And at the same time, competing in my heart was a desire to take part in the 10-year crusade in which the central figure of the Baha'i faith had asked people to go around the world to help build Baha'i communities. Mm -hmm. So I chose to do that. I went to France and helped develop that Baha'i community. And how long were you there in France? Just over a year. And what did you do there? Well, I babysat. I found a very elegant family, and they asked me to take care of their three-year-olds and 12-month-year-old daughters. So I would go with them to the park every afternoon, and we would play in the sunshine. I helped develop an index for one of the Baha'i books, which had been translated into French. That was rough going because it's difficult vocabulary. Mm. And then I went to Orléans, about 40 miles from Paris, and worked for the U.S. Army for the Department of Education for a little while. So what book was it that you were working the index on? The Gleanings. Which is the writings of Baha'u'llah. That's right. So how was your French? I mean, did you learn it in high school, I suppose? I took it two years in high school, and I studied it while I was in France. Why did you leave after one year? Oh, my father became ill, and I just couldn't... um, Well, two things. It would have been almost impossible financially But secondly, I felt as though I had an obligation to be with the family. So after you returned home, what did you do? I didn't know what to do with myself. I had wanted to go to law school, and I decided now I was too old, which is funny in retrospect. I went to a special program at Harvard that gives a Master of Arts in Teaching, So you take yard courses for half the year, and then you actually teach in a nearby school for the other half of the year. So a Master of Arts is just, it wasn't necessarily about arts teaching. It was just getting a master's degree in education so you could teach? Well, they called it, yes, that's essentially what it was. Mm -hmm. They called it Master of Arts in Teaching instead of in education because there were few courses in education. It was mostly about the subject matter that you were going to teach. And what was that again? What, What area of teaching were you going to do? I was going to do social science teaching. And you said this was a one year program or two year program? One year. Mm-hmm. And what did you do after you completed that one-year program? 
I taught for one year, Mm -hmm. and I found that I didn't like it. I was in Florida in a very wealthy community. It had an upper class of extremely affluent people, almost no middle class, and then the children of service workers, gas station attendants, laundry people, and it was a strange society, and this was soon after the era of McCarthyism, and the schools were very frightened that you might teach something. Well, uh, they took Hemingway's books out of the library because he had fought in the Spanish Civil War. So it was an atmosphere I did not like. So what did you do? Well, I was very interested in the civil rights movement, and I got a scholarship to study counseling. You could choose any university in America, but I chose the black school in Atlanta called Atlanta University, and I got my master's in counseling there. And how many, how many white students were there? Oh, I think there were about six. I was the only one who realized it was a black school when I signed up. The others didn't know what kind of school it was, and they were sort of shocked to find themselves at Atlanta University. So then what attracted you to Atlanta University of all the schools in the U.S.? Well, I wanted to go to a black school. I wanted to be part of the group of Baha'is in the South who were taking an extra step to be part of an integrated environment. So that was my goal. Was this like the late 60s? Early. I went there in 1962 and graduated in 1963. So it was just the early whisperings of the civil rights movement. What was your experience as a Baha'i during that era of race relations? It was thrilling to be a Baha'i during that time because when a group of Baha'is would gather together, it was a mixed group. And just to do that kind of broadcast our principles to all the people around us, just our sense of community with one another. And then, because Baha'u'llah said humanity is one, being in integrated atmospheres gave me an experience of the oneness of humanity, and that was thrilling. And you said this was... uh two-year program at the uh, University of Atlanta? It was uh, 14 months, I think, Mm -hmm. from June to the next August. Mm -hmm. And then what did you do after that? After that, I got married, and I tried to figure out what to do with myself because I really didn't like the atmosphere of the public schools, and I decided on psychology. I had tasted that in the counseling program, 
And so I got a scholarship to the University of Georgia and got my Ph.D. in psychology. Okay, so you graduated with a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you got a teacher's, that's right, a Master of Arts at uh, Harvard for teaching. Right. And then you got the Ph.D. at the University of Georgia in psychology, is it? Yes. And I'm so glad I chose that subject because since the development of a lot of new research methods like imaging, we are learning about the human brain so fast, so much, and we can now help people with problems that we couldn't do very much for before. It's really gratifying. What was your thesis at the University of Georgia? It was the characteristics of a group in which individuals make big changes towards mental health. I tried a couple of different kinds of groups, and then I found which one really helped the members to grow. Like a type of group, you mean? Yes, the the groups that were very frank as well as being warm, were the most effective. Some of the groups were warm and fuzzy, but they didn't deal with tough realities, and people didn't change as much in those groups. What did you do after you got your Ph.D.? I started working as a psychologist, and I've done that ever since, as a psychotherapist. So in the in the Georgia area? Yes. Mm-hmm. I've done it several places. I was at the University of North Carolina for five years, and I was in their community mental health clinic and also taught some courses on campus. You really enjoy doing the psychotherapy. I love it. Very fulfilling. Yeah, I guess you help a lot of people when you do that. Yes. Now, is there any kind of specialty that you found yourself falling into doing uh, psychotherapy? Recently, I've gotten interested in the problems of aging, not Alzheimer's and dementia particularly, because those are primarily biological. But many older people feel lonely, feel useless, feel a kind of despair about the meaninglessness of life because our culture doesn't honor elderly people and they're sort of pushed off to the side. So I've developed some workshops that help people face those challenges in a positive way. So what do you have people do in those workshops? Well, some of the problems of aging are feelings of regret, fear of what may come, fear of the unknown, fear of death. Usually, the topic is avoided. It's so frightening. So we look into how to overcome regret and fear 
and how to become comfortable with death, looking at it as a transition to another plane of consciousness. What about those people who feel that there's like nothing after death? Well, I haven't had anybody say that. I've given a workshop in California and Michigan and Arizona, and no one has presented that to me. I think the positive ideas about ending life could still be meaningful to someone who isn't planning on an afterlife by looking back at the satisfactions of things they've learned and accomplished in this life. When did you start delving into the area of of the elderly? About two years ago. I just noticed how abandoned the older people are in American culture. And from France, I knew what it's like to live in a culture that is not youth infatuated, so much kinder. So I had seen some cultures different, and I thought I could do something to help people in our country. Uh, and how about earlier? What was your what was your specialty before getting into elderly issues? Well, I saw a variety of people: depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. I worked with partial hospitalization program, helping schizophrenic people get stabilized. I did a variety of things. I did not do childhood work. I was always with adults. And did you find yourself falling into a technique that seemed to work really well for you in these issues? Well, I went to quite a variety of workshops, and in those, I learned a range of techniques And I found that when I saw a person, one or another of the techniques would seem most suited to that person. So I was quite flexible. I didn't settle on just one approach. It depended on who I was treating. And what were some of those collections of techniques that you had in your back pocket? Um, Gestalt technique and... I don't know if there's one word for it now, but body-centered therapy is another one. And trauma reduction therapy is another one. Can you give us a quick description on each of those? In Gestalt psychology, you are, the psychologist is very sensitive to the wholeness of the person. And any discrepancy in that wholeness gets her attention and she finds out what's that about and does dream work and some other things in order to restore a balance. Trauma reduction, we have learned now, as I was saying, our research has shown us ways to help a person get over post-traumatic stress syndrome, how to relieve the terrible anxiety that stays with people after a trauma. 
and that is by a method of, how could I describe it? Well, having them re-experience bit by bit the trauma, and after each bit, bringing themselves back to a state of calmness. And that begins to relieve the anxiety. Body-oriented is a fascinating set of technologies where we are very observant of the body, the gestures of the person, where the tensions are, and we help the person to become aware of those same things. Be aware that they're clenching their teeth or their stomach is twisting. And by focusing on those things, they become aware of difficult, painful emotions that they have been avoiding. And then we work through those emotions. So the body work is really a way to reach the feelings. So have you ever heard of Raymond Moody? Raymond Moody. Yeah, he's the one who did all of the near-death experience. Yes, I've read his book. Yeah. Have you ever, uh, has that ever been of any value in in your work with uh, elderly people? Yes, yes. Because there are other writers who report near-death experiences. There's a Baha'i who put a video about her near-death experience. And they all say similar things. And they all say positive. So it's very reassuring to people to look over that literature and see what it has to offer. Can you tell me how the Baha'i faith informed your work as a psychotherapist over the years? Well, it gives you great faith in the potential of each human being. The materialistic view of psychology, which has changed now, but when I was going to school, was quite pessimistic because you really were a creature determined by your past. And if it was a troubled past, your future didn't have much promise. Now, that has changed in psychology. But for me, being a Baha'i all these decades, I know that every individual has a tremendous potential. The spiritual qualities of the individual can help them overcome emotional difficulties. So it gave you a positive attitude as you were helping a client. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would pray for my patients. I believed that prayer had an effect on their spirit. It made me treasure the scientific findings because the Baha'i faith says religion and science are in harmony. So all the new material about the brain was something I relished and was able to use because of my respect for science. You've been uh, 
a practicing psychotherapist for some time. Yes. So you see yourself doing this indefinitely? Yes, I'm semi-retired now, mm. and I love it. I have mm. just enough psychological work to be interesting and mm. to keep me moving forward in my techniques, and then not enough so that it feels like a pressure or difficult. I'd love to do that forever. Jane, one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith is independent investigation of truth where one does not just follow in the footsteps of their ancestors or parents in the religion that they grew up in. And in your case, where you were raised as a Baha'i, was there a point in your life where you realized, I'm no longer following the faith of my parents, but I'm following a faith that I own? Yes, when I got to college and I tasted all these other great fountains of knowledge, I learned the value of the Baha'i faith far more deeply and independently than I had understood before. I could appreciate it and see the need that the world had for a unifying faith. So it became my own at that time. And is there anything you still want to do that you haven't done yet? Oh my, let's see, go to China. I'd love to see China. What attracts you to China? I love Chinese art. I'm fascinated with the ancient civilization, the things they discovered so long before Europe. And it's otherness, the fact that their culture is so different from ours. All of that attracts me. Well, maybe someday you'll be able to go. I hope so. So, Jane, have you published anything? Uh, My thesis was published. My Mm. dissertation, I wrote an article about it, and that was published. And I'm just about three-quarters of the way through a book that I expect will be published. And what's the book about? The book is called I Bear Witness, and it's about personal experiences I had with several of the hands of the cause, which gives a personal view of what they were like. I thought people in the future would be very eager to get that kind of knowledge about them. And then when I sent that to the publisher, they sent it back and said, you have to write more about yourself. It has to be a memoir. So now there's some about myself in there. Anything anything about yourself that you haven't covered in this interview? Well, I grew spiritually from childhood and college and on and on. And part of the path of growth, of course, is some painful experiences. So my sense of certitude in the meaning of life and the purpose of suffering is very strong. And I share, I share that in the book. 
You mentioned Hands of the Cause. For people who aren't familiar with the Baha'i faith, can you explain what you mean by Hands of the Cause? Yes, these are people who are very spiritually distinguished. They are appointed by the center of the faith, and they're very different from one another, different professions, different countries and languages, and different outstanding spiritual qualities. And what they did, in my experience, was share their spiritual power with all the rest of the Baha'is and non-Baha'is when they spoke or told stories or whatever, so that we could understand through experience what some of these words meant, like meekness and power, compassion. They're wonderful words, but it meant everything to see them embodied in the lives and behavior of men and women. So, Jane, when do you think this book may be published? I hope to get it done in the next six months. Great. Well, we look forward to the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for telling your story. You're most welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jane Fairley, a Baha'i and psychotherapist. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
best and optimist When it's my fashion of both to be a pessimist From what's in 75% of what we read here in you Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Ripperton Who used to always say when she was living Like fine wine, I like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough But never to the point of me saying I've had enough Long as my heart beats, I'm giving up That's why I say every day American, what do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision, and it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon. But truly, there's much guidance through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the car. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody.
emptied out Romance and recognition lost their clout And left a space for love to end drought And so he went to travel To share and be refilled As planes rise, cares descend From squatting in the dwelling of the friend And open wounds of lifetime start to mend
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.